I think that while we think of rest as you know, kind of a weakness, as uh, it turns out that the right kind of rest is actually a source of great strength for us. And it is something that makes us more creative, it makes us more resilient, it makes us better people. Welcome to Digital Mindfulness. I'm your host, Lawrence Sampofo. On the show today, I'm here with Alex Sujung Kim Pang for the second time. Alex came on the show in 2014 when we were talking about the distraction addiction. In this episode, we talk about his new book, Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less. You should listen to this episode if you want to find out about the importance of deliberate rest, what deep play is, and also how the right kind of rest in an always-on society can be a source of strength. But first of all, welcome to Digital Mindfulness. We bring together the best teachers, thought leaders and entrepreneurs to teach you how to be your best self in an age of digital distraction and information overload. If you're new to our show, then the best place you can find out more about us is if you visit digitalmindfulness.net forward slash start which has a collection of some required listening podcasts where we discuss everything from becoming more focused in a distracted world to habit building, overcoming digital distraction, cyberbullying, internet addiction, and much, much more. Okay, enjoy the show with Alex Sujung Kim Pang. Alex, welcome back to Digital Mindfulness. I think you're actually the first person that I've had back on to the show. So welcome back. It's great to have you here. Hey, it's an honor honor to be here a second time <laughs> to blaze that trail. <laughs> so I guess in, a, in the time that you've been on the show, you've moved from focusing on distraction to rest. How did, mm-hmm. you, how did you make that transition? And I guess to me, most importantly, how are the two interlinked? Right. Um, the short answer is that both of these projects in a way uh, came out of the same, um, the same work that I did when I was at Cambridge, uh, about five years ago. I had a, actually six years now, I had a sabbatical there, um, in 2011 and was doing the work that, uh, doing the research that eventually became, um, the distraction addiction, my previous book. But, you know, while I was there, I also had this experience of living a completely different kind of life that I than the one that I had here in Silicon Valley. Um, you know, working in the working in Silicon Valley, working as a consultant, is a lot of projects, long hours, nights and weekends, total multitasking. Um, and when I was in England, on the other hand. Um, I was, you know, I was getting incredible amounts done. I was reading tons and writing a lot, but I felt like my wife and I had incredible amounts of free time. Um, you know, we would go to London and do stuff there and go off to other places on weekends. And I thought, you know, this is nuts. You know, that, uh, that it, you know, and also wonderful, but you know, I was getting all this stuff done even while it felt like having a lot more leisure time than, um, you know, than I had in my normal life. So, you know, that's, it's that kind of experience, you know, and it's a, it's, it, that's completely counterintuitive if you, you know, live your life assuming that, um, in order to do really good work, what you have to do is work really hard for really long periods of time, as I had for you know most of my adult life. And so, after the distraction addiction, um, I kind of I came back to this question of uh, uh, and of uh, how is it possible to you know or is it you know is it possible? to craft ways of working in which you are working fewer hours, but you're actually or still doing really interesting stuff um, and you know, stuff that's really meaningful. And I real, and I, st- and I'm an historian by training. So, you know, sort of my default when I'm thinking about questions is to, you know, is to, is to look to the past and very quickly found that, 
when you look at the lives of Nobel laureates or great writers or artists in the past, it turns out that a significant number of them um, work or do what we would regard as work for only about four or five hours a day. They work very intensively, but that's all they do. And then they go off and do other things. You know, they go off on long walks, they go swimming, they have um, or of other daily habits. They might come back and do a little bit of, you know, sort of answering letters or other, you know, other, other very lightweight stuff for a little bit um, later in the day. But the core of their work is this, per- is this concentrated period of about four hours. And doing, working in that way, Charles Darwin wrote The Origin of Species. Um, Charles Dickens wrote Great Expectations and many of his other sort of novels. Um, the cartoonist Scott Adams, who created Dilbert, um, follows this kind of schedule. And you know, an amazing number of people you want to be like work this way. And so I wondered, you know, sort of uh, clearly they know something that we don't. Right, sort of, and I and I started thinking. Well, you know, maybe it's not that all these people are total super geniuses. Maybe it's and maybe it's not just that they're able to pack like twelve hours of work into four hours because of life hacks or other you know techniques that they have. Maybe what they did in the other twenty hours actually or mattered here, um, helped make them who they were. And so when I started looking at their, you know, their leisure, their hobbies, um, how much they slept or of their daily, or of the other broadened out and looked at the other parts of their daily schedule and their daily activities, I found that there were some very consistent patterns in not just how they worked, but also how they rested. So they did things like um, spend a lot of time or of walking or doing other kinds of exercise. Um, many of them, you know, we have many of them um, of defy the stereotype of the creative or the scientist or artist as, you know, this kind of schnurky um, person who spends all their time indoors and, you know, never gets any exercise. Um, in fact, for you know, many of them were avid mountain climbers or hikers or um, excellent uh, or, or excellent athletes, and their idea of like a daily break was more vigorous than our idea of a workout. Right? Charles Dickens would go walking for between ten and twenty miles every day, and this was like you know in those Victorian boots. So you know, he's not like putting on. Un- under armor and, <laughs> you know, and trainers and making it easy on himself. And he's not at all unusual. And so, you know, and so, you know, recognize, so seeing that they're working, ver- that they're, they're working less, or they're working fewer hours, that they're following this pattern, that there are consistent ways, not only in the way that they work, but also sort of in the way that they rest, um, or of, was you know, suggested that there really is something interesting here. The last piece of the puzzle came in when I started looking in the literature in um, neuroscience and the psychology of creativity, which turns out to sort uh, of be full of case studies uh, explaining why it is that, or measure, at least measuring how things like walking and exercise affect performance on creativity tests or attention or, or the the ability to um, ma- to, uh, to or of, uh, manage complex tasks or hold lots of things in short-term memory and so it so there is a body of scientific research that explains why it is that people like Darwin or Einstein or Toni Morrison or um, uh, Pablo Picasso or Salvador Dali would have worked the way that they did and rested the way that they did and why those two things actually worked together to make them super creative and super prolific. Now, 
so how does this connect to the distraction addiction? Well, the simple answer is that the distraction addiction was about the importance of focus, the importance of concentration in doing good work. And rest turned out, as I realized about two-thirds of the way through it, to be a sequel to this, to the distraction addiction, in that it was about the importance of sort of mind-wandering and rest and leisure in doing creative work. And so together, those two books cover the two great things that I think uh, you need in order to in order to do the kind of work that you want. Um, there may be a third and maybe I'll find, you know, maybe, maybe I'll or discover that at some point and, you know, write a sequel. But, um, you know, and while I don't get into it very much in rest, you know, it, it definitely is the case that, um, uh, that just as devices and social media can distract us from, focusing in the workplace and and doing good work so too is it every bit as possible for them to um distract us from resting well you know there are yeah in just last month there was a study that came out about how people systematically underestimate the amount of time that they spend looking uh, spend on facebook and there actually have been several studies like this now that uh, that uh, that show pretty consistently that people do a t- uh, people are really good at underestimating how how much time they are on social media, and that it is uh, and that you know not only you know is it the case that there's a lot of stuff there that is appealing or distracting. But we also do a really good job of rationalizing our ability to spend small portions of time on those, but actually consuming large portions of time. And so, you know, given that there are only X number of hours in a day, that means less time for sort of other, sort of other more cognitively beneficial and creatively stimulating sort of activity or leisure, you know, including leisure activity. But it's also the case, it's looking like our brains kind of treat Facebook and Twitter like work rather than like rest, in the sense that when you're seeing what your friends are up to, you know, what conferences they're going to, where they're traveling, um, you make some of the, uh, that, uh, as far as your brain is concerned, the work of making sense of that is more like real work than it is like what your brain can do when you kick back and you know you're binge watching the new season of of the Americans or Orange is the New Black. So or uh, so yeah, the uh, the it is it it turns out to be just as important to be mindful of how you use devices of how devices want to use you um, of their effect on your not. Their their effect on both your attention and on your ability to let your mind go and to let your mind wander and to think about nothing at all. So that's how all these that's how those books are are connected together. I really love what you're just talking about and think it's absolutely true. But for a lot of people listening to this, they might just say, "Do you know what? I don't have the time to work five hours a day. The type of job that I." do requires me to be online for a lot of the day if not all day so what would you say to these people why is it so important physiologically and psychologically for us to be able to completely rest there is now a century's worth of research on that looks at um, a couple of sort of big questions one is um, what happens to people and organizations when they um, overwork chronically? The second is what are the what are the what are the short-term and long-term benefits for people and companies and creativity from um, vacations and leisure activity? And then the third is what's the relationship between um, or between rest and creativity? So now. For the last hundred years or so, psychologists and organizational sociologists have found that 
overwork is actually in the long run um, sort of a terrible strategy for people and organizations to pursue because you get basically what happens is that it's possible to kind of go into overdrive to or for um, you know, for uh, for brief periods for and I'm talking about like a few weeks so you know when there are uh, this is uh, you know we're talking about like seasonal periods where you know projects are due or there are big trade fairs or tax time or something like that right you know you sort of it's a period of you know the month where everything is happening and you and there's uh, there's just tons of work and you got to stay late and do it now people are perfectly capable of handling a few weeks of that and increasing their productivity after about Eight weeks or so, though, for people working longer than 40 hours, there is a significant drop-off in their productivity, so that after several months, they are no more productive than they are if they're working 40 hours a week. And you also have the problem of increased likelihood of people making sort of mistakes, of errors of judgment. People who are stressed and are chronically overworked are more likely to cheat or to cut corners, which is a problem if you are, you know, in the law or medicine or any, you know, or doing scientific research or any number of uh, of professions, um, and especially in organizations that are doing highly complex or very precise kinds of work, this can lead to disasters. So. The Samsung 7 debacle it turns out to be a really good example of this. Um, it turned uh, sort of the story is that Samsung realized that it that <coughs> the iPhone 7 was going to be delayed, and they decided that if they could get their new flagship phone out before the uh, or before the new iPhone, that this would give them a leg up in the marketplace, and so everybody. In the phone division went into overtime. Um, the engineers were sleeping under their desks for months. You had, uh, uh, and they did titanic amounts of work that uh, that resulted in a phone that was absolutely brilliant, with one little problem that nobody had noticed because they were either too tired to pay attention to the details of the testing with the battery. Or you know, they had uh, they had so many things going on that they couldn't pay or uh, you know pay as much attention to and notice the warning signs um, that there was a battery issue, and so they ship millions of these things, and it turns out the batteries explode, and that turns and I think that that is a real that a really important cautionary tale, because you know more and more of the uh, the uh, the high value things that we produce that we consume um, the services that we use depend for their success on working and playing well as part of big complicated systems and so if you know and so that means that you know a mistake that you make can have you know, can turn out to have gigantic ramifications in a way that it wouldn't if you were, you know, making say wooden toys. Um, and so, but the but the literature on the long term consequences of overwork is of, is very unanimous on this point. It's also the case that people who are sort of chronically overworked, who are chronically stressed, are more likely to suffer from things like obesity. Heart disease, um, other kinds of sort of stress-related illnesses, and tend to have or uh, tend to have um, higher mortality rates and don't live as long. So that's another reason it's not good for you. The benefits of vacation, on the other hand, are just as well understood and demonstrably are um, as beneficial as overwork is harmful. So yeah, there's. Yeah, and breaks from work turn out to be both physically restorative but also psychologically restorative 
And it turns out um, we have a pretty good understanding of what kinds of breaks offer the biggest bang for your buck. There was a really interesting study that was done about 25 or 30 years ago of military reservists and you know comparing reserve or of comparing reservists who went off for a month and drove tanks or did other things to people who went on vacation and it turned out and we've seen this in studies in the US and the UK and Canada and Israel that people who go who return from um, who return from military service have have levels of um, enthusiasm for their job, resilience, job satisfaction, as high as people who had spent a couple weeks at the beach. This tells us two things. Number one, that just getting out of the workplace is restorative. But second, that actually doing active things rather than passive things offers more, is actually offers a better return on investment in terms of rest. Um, you can also see this in sort of much smaller scale studies. Um, women executives, for example, who go on business trips tend to find those more restorative because, than men do because it means they're not dealing with kids and housework. Um, you know, when you're sort of, you know, when you've, when you have to fly to Copenhagen to pitch to clients, it, there's certainly plenty of pressure to do well. On the other hand, someone else is making the bed and you don't have to worry about doing the dishes. So, you know, or of that kind of change turns out to be, uh, turns out to be restorative as well. So, and so the benefits of taking regular vacations also extend into um, longer life or of lower rates of heart disease um, sort of lower rates of um, sort of dementias and other kinds of cognitive issues later in life. And so, you know, so vacations and leisure turn out to be every bit as beneficial as overwork is harmful. And then finally, this, there's this literature on creativity and leisure and rest. And what we are seeing is that Rest, of restful activities, and or of those periods where you're where you allow your mind to focus on nothing at all, are actually periods where um, your brain is actually super active. Um, but in the 1990s, scientists who were using fMRI, you know, those brain scanners that show those cool pictures cool color pictures of your brain doing stuff, um, found, uh, would have discovered that when they put people in fMRI machines and told them to think about nothing at all, you know, just like be as relaxed as you can, their brains actually didn't get quiet. Um, instead, what happens is that a, sec a whole second sort of network of connections between parts of the brain fires up, and it does so really quickly. Um, it turns out that the resting brain is no less active in terms of energy consumption and number of neurons firing than the brain when you're, you know, trying to figure out how to get, you know, how to how to drive in in traffic in London or do calculus problems or other really complicated things. And furthermore, that resting brain is has or connections between or between parts that seem to allow it to explore a wider range of ideas or connections between things than or than our, our conscious brains or conscious minds. And so what this means so this helps explain why it is that you know, we uh, we all will, experience that phenomenon of sudden, of having you know sudden sudden aha moments or insights you know that that you know that thing where you're trying to remember the actress who was in that thing and was also on that you know in the movie and dated that you know dated that person and you can't remember who it is and then you are you know or if you're on your way to work and you realize wait that was scarlett johansson um 
that's the default mode network continuing to work on the question of who was that actress, even while you, even while you were doing other, your conscious mind is doing other things. What people who are who learn to practice deliberate rest are doing, it seems to me, is learning to rest in ways that harness that default mode network, that allow them to, in a sense, outsource some of the some of the work that they are doing to their creative subconscious, so that they are able to solve problems, to formulate insights um, without apparently having to work, quote-unquote, as hard on them as, or, uh, as the rest of us. Um, and indeed, it is arguably the case that this helps explain why some people are or, uh, uh, as strikingly original as, or, uh, in their work as they are. So... Henri Poincaré, the great 19th century mathematician, set, who had a number of these moments of insight where he worked intensively on a problem and then put it aside, and then weeks later had an answer come to him while he was walking on the, walking on the cliffs or riding in the bus, said that you know, much to his chagrin, he had to admit that his subconscious mind was the better mathematician because it was able to come up with solutions to that uh, that uh, that he working consciously could not and that you know, uh, you know and that part of his uh, part of his success lay in his ability to recognize that this was so and to do things that didn't exactly um, or of command this, uh, or to command his, his creative subconscious, but rather at least kind of nudged it along and encouraged it to work on, uh, to work on these questions that had eluded his conscious mind. So, um, that's sort of, that's the science behind, um, deliberate rest that no matter what kind of work you do, of rest is valuable for sort of restoring the mental and psychological energy that you spend during work. Um, it is important because it allows, it, or because it helps prevent problems. Um, it is it's significant because um, sort of both the avoidance of overwork and having vacations and and serious leisure. Um, make you healthier for longer and make your life better. And they also help you be more creative. So one of the things you mentioned before was that the way that our brains interpret social media use is much the same as work. So it's almost like we're constantly at work um, by our brain's perception. And I'm wondering whether you think that people are almost too distracted to or working too hard to be able to rest properly? Um, they certainly are, they certainly can be connected, yes. Um, I mean, I think that the, you know, at a practical level, um, there is distraction in terms of um, time that we spend on social media or devices that we could spend doing other sort of more profitable things, um, things, that, uh, things that give us better rest. The second thing, though, I think, is that you know an important part of you of or triggering and using the default mode network um, of doing what psychologists call mind wandering, which is the state that you're in when you when you don't have to focus your attention on anything in particular. You know, it's that sort of zoning out when you're or of sitting in the back of a car or folding laundry or doing other kinds of mindless activities. The ability to get into that state is, I think, negatively affected by constant engagement with social media part or with, with digital devices. Because, you know, rather than... It, I mean, it, you know, when you become accustomed to 
checking Facebook in line at the grocery store or uh, or to checking your email. Anytime things seem a little uh, – anytime you have a free moment or things start to get boring, um, you know, I think it, become, it, is, it becomes harder for you to simply sit and let your mind do nothing at all. And so while in one sense um, – you know, trying to get to inbox zero makes you feel like you are more productive and more attentive to your work. The cost is that it subverts your ability to, or, uh, to, to harness this part of your brain that is capable of doing all kinds of great creative things that sometimes exceed your own conscious ability. So I think, you know, and so I think that that turns out to be another sort of significant, um, you know, significant trade-off that we make when, uh, or when we use or become addicted to um, our social media and our devices. So I guess then my next question is, how do we get then, I've got, how do we get more done when we, when we deliberately rest, because it almost seems antithetical. Like someone listening to this podcast now might just say, go to their boss and say, do you know what? Um, I need to, <laughs> right? I need more time looking out of the window and accessing my, you know, my, and they'll get laughed out of the room. So I'm wondering how do we, you know, how is it that we get more done when we rest? Right. So, okay. So uh, there are, the people who are able to do four or five hours are people who have pretty much total control over their own schedules, right? Um, and you know, if you are not in that position, then I think there were uh, there were still a, uh, there are still a couple strategies to pursue. When you look at people like, let's say, generals or neurosurgeons, or you know, people who are uh, uh, or people who's uh, who still have to work long hours or whose time is not very predictable. Um, you know, when you're, when you are, e- even the world's best emergency room doctor cannot predict when the next patient is going to come in. What those people do is, um, their deliberate rest tends to consist of serious hobbies. So they often are, have these second lives as, you know, writers or athletes, or they have some other creative endeavor. Um, and they are very serious about maintaining boundaries between their work life and their home life. So, um, they are rigorous about taking vacations. They are, they often will have, um, they'll often have places that they retreat to, you know that you know, where they are, where there's a family rule about um, you know sort of no work, you know no discussions about you know about office politics, and having those, and so you know, they are for, uh, and what they find is that both for their own psychological preservation and in order to be sort of more present and more productive when they are in the office, being able to switch off effectively is really critical. Um, you know, I think that this is something that we have tended to lose sight of. You know, there's an assumption that we are, that we will be, you know, more productive as we, you know, if we are checking our email at you know, 10 at night or first thing when we get up in the morning and the, and there is, plenty of evidence that suggests that that is not so. Um, so I think that, you know, even if you don't have a boss who you can have that kind of, you know, have a, have a conversation with about what can happen in the office, um, there are still things that, you know, that, uh, that you can do in order to, or to, to, to give yourself more deliberate rest. You know, another thing is as a very practical matter, um, people who practice this kind of deliberate rest say no to a lot of stuff. They're, they are not exactly minimalists, but, um, you know, they have their work, they have family and this one other thing that is really good for them. And that's pretty much all they do. But it turns out 
that's actually a pretty full life. Um, you know, if you find that, you know, find what I call in the book deep play, you know, an activity that is as engaging as your work, but with, you know, which offers many of the same satisfactions without the frustrations, then that's actually a really terrific thing. Um, so now for people who are, who could bring this up or who have workplaces that are more, you know, that are more project oriented, um, or, you know, bosses who are more data driven, there is an awful lot of research, you know, first off, there's a ton of research that indicates how it is that, um, scaling back on overtime on shortening the workday can be a good thing. There are also plenty of companies that are experimenting with shorter workdays, with practices that um, counter the constant distractions of open offices, um, of organizing their days to give people uninterrupted blocks of time where they can really focus heads down and they don't have to have five Slack channels open and people coming over every three minutes to ask them questions. And so I think that there were, there were companies that show that it really is possible to or re-engineer the working day and the workplace so as to give people more time to focus or a time to focus very intensively so that they can then um, you know, get done the critical things that they need to do and, uh, and get out of the office earlier. Um, and then if you are, you know, if you have a lot of control over your time, then I think that the, you know, of the things that separate um, the people who do really well with that from those sort of who don't are that, first of all, you have a routine that of blocks off periods where you're working really hard. Very often the sort of the super early morning before anybody else is up and before you can really start to like distract yourself. Um, and then you also you, you also very consciously block out time for walks or you know a daily swim or sort of something else that um, uh, that takes your mind off work but is not so engaging that your subconscious can't continue kind of turning over ideas and sort of testing out things. Um, and they, and if you're able to do that, um, you find that kind of balance, then, uh, you know, I think uh, you find that you can actually be very productive at big complex tasks um, without sort of having to spend enormous amounts of time on them. You know, this is something that I do myself. You know, the sort of the four or five hours, or was this was something that I started seeing when I was writing the distraction addiction. You know, I would get up really early in the morning before the before my children uh, or sort of wife were awake. Um, it was also so early that I had no interest in looking at Facebook or Twitter because, you know, if I was going to force myself to get up at 5 a.m., I was actually going to get stuff done. Um, and nobody else was awake anyway. And I found that if I did that by like 10, by like 10 in the morning, I had written, you know, a few pages and I felt really good about it. And, you know, work and I am someone who previously had, you know, started generally started like work at like nine or 10 at nine or 10 at night and assumed that, you know, you burn the midnight oil and sort of that's how creative people worked. But I found that, you know, that working in this, working in this way with this much more measured pace, um, I've been able to write two books in the last, you know, five years and, you know, which is, you know, a pretty good record so far. So, um, you know, my own life, my own life tells me that um, this is you know, this is this is a this is a better way of working than the one you know than like the you know heroic 
um, you know, 90 hour week or of, you know, style, you know, or of erase the boundary between work and life style that we've come to think is both, um, both desirable and inevitable. It's interesting though, because I think that we have to not only in companies, but in ourselves build this rest culture, right? Mm -hmm. Because yeah. it's and and it is a culture. It's a way of thinking, and and I'm wondering what you obviously you know you've got your company, which I hope you're going to talk about. But I'm wondering how you would advocate doing this because I know even recently Donald Trump, um, it was revealed that apparently that he only sleeps three hours a night, and Margaret Thatcher only mm -hmm. four hours a night, and you know these people are celebrated, and and actually when you go into a lot of companies, you know the the metric for success. Um, it's all about, you know, the time that we spend in the office doing stuff, producing things. Right. It's all optimized yes. for efficiency. So it's almost like how do you get that culture change to shift from efficiency to doing our best work? Right. Well, you know, I think the first thing to point out is that long hours are actually not about not so much about efficiency because it, you know, the assumption is it, it's almost like assuming that. Um, if you can do in 12 hours a task that someone else can do in one hour, that you're going to hire the 12 hour person, um, you know, which is, you know, which is obviously not the case. Now, I mean, I think that, you know, we need to recognize that for a bunch of reasons, we treat the amount of time that people spend working as a measure of their commitment and their productivity when in fact it measures neither, um, there are you know I think that there uh, that if you are you know, th there are only some very specific fields where um, a relationship between time and income is you know really holds you know if you're a lawyer and you're billing you know you're billing people basically by the minute then yeah. The more time you spend with a client, the more money you're going to make. But generally, that relationship is a lot less clear than uh, sort of than we believe. Um, but we believe it because we've grown up in a world in which our exemplars are people like Margaret Thatcher or you know Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or hedge fund managers, you know people for whom success meant working intensely long hours, often in a kind of race against the clock, you know, whether it was a, uh, or the, a race against the next election or the next you know, turn in the economy or turn in Moore's law, which meant that they had, you know, if they were, were going to make their mark, they had to do so now. And thus, thus rationalizing or uh, apparently rationalizing titanic numbers of hours. Um, you know, it's also the case that in you know, that living in an economy that is both sort of more global and more uncertain, that employers have been able to you know, demand this demand longer hours from their workers, you know, from their workforce. And always, you know, behind this is. The, the implicit or occasionally explicit threat that if you don't put in these long hours, we can easily find someone who will. And then finally, there is, there's been this, this weird sort of culture shift that has happened among professionals, which is that, you know, it used to be the case that having leisure was a mark of your success, that, you know, that, uh, uh, but today, um, the equation is flipped. The real status comes from being super busy. And you know, if you are overcommitted, if lots of people want your time, this shows that you are in demand, that you're successful, that you know, sort of you're doing you're doing work that's significant. And leisure, in contrast, has come to be seen as either you know kind of shady or as something that the truly successful busy person shouldn't need or shouldn't have time for. So, 
you know, all of these things together I think, or have help create this sense of inevitability and inescapability of sort of busyness and overwork. That is not to say that, you know, but I say the appearance of, or of, of, uh, of their inevitability. I think it's still the case that we have room to maneuver and we have room, it is possible, uh, sort of to change things that, you know, it is possible for us to recognize that, sort of, that, that these are, these are habits that we pick up, um, from a world that actually hasn't really thought them through and designed them carefully, um, you know, and that there are other better ways of, or of organizing our work, of you know, managing our people, of managing our attention, and or of, uh, and that and that these other ways will actually allow us to do better work and to be better people. It's a real shame that we. Um... I think us in our offices and the way that we approach work that we tend to think that the more time that we spend in the office equates to the more success that we have. So it's really like an industrial um, model of production that the more uptime there is, then the more successful we'll be when rather maybe we should be thinking about um, what, you know, the extent to which we do our best work as the measure of our success. Right. Yeah, which, you know, which arguably is the case if all you are doing is filling, you know, sort of filling tubes with gunpowder. But, you know, even in those, but however, the first studies showing that overwork led to all those problems that I talked about before were actually done in British munitions factories during World War One. Um, around 1916 or so, or the, the the government realized that they weren't that you know these factories were running at 60 or 80 hours a week, and people were working seven days a week, but they were no more productive than they had been a year earlier. And that led them to ask, okay, so what is it that's going on? Are people shirking? You know, are there you know is there are there communists who are you know undermining you know or the the workflow, and it turned out, no. It's simply that this kind of chronic overwork is unsustainable for you know the reasons that they that that, uh, that the researchers then sort of discovered, and which have been you know confirmed time and time since in a variety of different kinds of workplaces and across professions, ranging from factory work to law enforcement to. Yeah, to medicine, to nursing, to the law, and to the military. So we spoke earlier about the importance of deep play as a way to get deliberate rest. But what are the other ways that you manage to get into this state of deliberate rest? So, you know, um, I am really unapologetic now about taking naps. So I think that, you know, at a, at a daily basis, that is... Um, one of my biggest changes, you know, in the afternoon, rather than, you know, having another cup of coffee and trying to like force my way through something that I'm working on, um, I will take a nap for 20 minutes, and that offers as good a mental refresh as anything else I can do, and I find I am much more productive for the rest of the afternoon. Um, for me, also, I find that. Like a lot of, uh, of my creative exemplars in the book, that having a routine where you are, or where that focuses on, you know, intensive periods of work, and then or of declaring oneself essentially done for the day, kind of pacing out, pacing out your work so that. Um, you think about completing tasks over the course of a couple days rather than like, you know, one giant heroic burst is really important for doing a lot of good work. Um, another important thing that I've realized is, uh, is working in the early morning and an ascent. And for me, two essential parts of that 
are, first of all, setting up as much as I possibly can the night before so that when the alarm goes off at 5 or 5.30 and I stagger up out of bed, I don't have to think about doing anything. All, you know, I've set up the coffee the night before. I have sugar in the mug sitting beside it. I have the list of things that I'm going to work on already written out on my desk that, you know, and all I have to do is like put on clothes, which are already at the foot of the bed, stagger over to the coffee machine, pour coffee, go over to the desk, lift up the lid of the laptop and start writing. I don't have to make a single decision about, oh, you know, what do I work on? Or do I, you know, do I get out of bed? Do I not get out of bed? You know, do I have coffee or tea? All that stuff is worked out for, you know, I've done, I've, I've made all those choices the night before so that I can just focus exclusively on the work. The other thing that I do is, is stop in, I stop in mid-sentence the day before. This is something that Ernest Hemingway talked about doing, which was that um, his advice to writers was, uh, was never start the day looking at a blank page that you always stop when you have a sentence or two left in the paragraph so that when you get back, so that first of all, when you get back to it the next morning, you're not faced with the existential terror of not, know, you know, not, you know, not knowing what you're going to write first. Um, but instead you can kind of ease into it. But Hemingway also said that there was a second benefit to this, which was that it gets your subconscious mind thinking about not just the next paragraph, but the next page and the next chapter. That for him, it was a technique for getting his subconscious working on his behalf while he was out, you know, fish, you know marlin fishing or um, you know going to bullfights. And there were a lot of writers who find that this is the case. That leaving a little bit for the next day helps them get started makes it easier to sort of just get into the rhythm of writing, but it also seems to help their creative minds continue working on the plot or the story or the problem, um, even while they're off doing other things. And I've become a big believer in this. Um, I find that this is, uh, that it is a great technique and I've had, you know, and you know, some of my best ideas, I think, come when I've been working on something the day before and I just let it kind of cogitate. And then early the next morning, before I'm really fully awake, um, I'll write something and it will you know, turn out to be the answer to this problem or you know, the resolution of some technical issue that I've been working on. And, you know, have I, you know, in, you know, have I, did I, you know, did I like work out the solution while I was dreaming? Did I do, you know, was there sort of exact, you know, exactly when, exactly when the answer came to me? I don't know. But, um, the fact is, you know, sort of it's there. So when that happens, it's a really terrific feeling. So, Alex, now that you're on this journey um, from addiction to rest and deliberate rest, what would you say are the most important human traits and how do we cultivate those? That's an interesting, I mean, it's, it, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, I've been sort of thinking about this partly in the context of, um, or of you know, debates about automation and the erosion of you know, the ability of robots to do increasingly sophisticated tasks that, um, you know, not just blue collar workers or manual workers do, but also, you know, white collar and professionals. And, you know, it really raises the question, what are humans good for, right? If algorithms and soft robots are capable of doing, you know, or of diagnosing, you know, or of, um, diseases or reading x-rays or so forth, then what do you, you know, why do, why do we need workers at all? And I think that, you know, the, that um, 
you know, the one thing that really does still distinguish people from robots is our capacity to um, our capacity to rest well in, and to be creative. That it, it is for all of you know the kind of cool and quirky things that let's say. Um, you know, IBM's Watson is able to do in you know, cre- in or of creating um, movie trailers, or that um, it, sort of Google's artificial intelligence division has been able to do in terms of you know, making um, making a system that's capable of creating dreamlike images. Those are you know those are kind of interesting, but um, they are nowhere near what humans are still uh, or what humans are capable of doing. And I think that while we think of rest as you know, kind of a weakness, as uh, it turns out that the right kind of rest is actually a source of great strength for us. And it is something that makes us more creative, it makes us more resilient, it makes us better people. And so, but I think that in, you know, that, uh, that, uh, that in strict economic terms, that, you know, the human capacity for thinking creatively is, is, is the, is the single most important thing that we have in our favor. And it's also the case that that kind of creativity is not just something that you exercise like when you're working on an ad campaign or doing medical research. That kind of creativity is something that um, we need to be able to draw upon in our daily lives, you know, when we're dealing with family stuff or managing children. And so that's, you know, it's not just like creativity with the big C, um, you know, the kind that yields, um, you know, the Sistine Chapel. But modern life demands actually a lot of creativity in order to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to navigate through and, ba- you know, and, and deal with its various challenges and, you know, to live well. So it is, it is, it is essential both as a thing that distinguish that distinguishes humans, but it's also important as a thing that helps make us human. Alex, where can people find out more about you and Restful? And so, um, the Deliberate Rest blog, which talks about the book and sort of new new research in creativity, new experiments in the workday. Um, that is at deliberate.rest. Rest is actually now a top-level domain. So um, I, was, you know, I, was, I, was, I was quick to, quick to grab that URL. And then um, the Restful company is restful.company. So, and that explains sort of what it is that the Restful company does and how to get in touch. Um, and then on Twitter and pretty much every other platform that I am on, um, I have the username AskPang, A-S-K-P-A-N-G. So um, there were, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. I think, Alex, this has been such an important episode, you know, just like learning just how important it is to rest. And again, just that distinction from, you know, let's be our best selves, not just our busiest selves right yes absolutely just so important and yeah thanks so much for coming on again and sharing that with (laughs) us i really appreciate it uh it's been a real pleasure lawrence